0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle24, I am Marcus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. On today's show we break the spine on a new year. Monocle's Robert Bound thumbs through some of the books that should be on your reading list in 2023.
1: Marius has a way with first lines, and this book's no (laughs) exception. It begins, I was brought up the old-fashioned way and couldn't ever have dreamed that I would one day be ordered to kill a woman.
0: Plus, we meet a new arrival to London, Seville Rowe, who is drawing a different crowd to the
2: area with an offer of bespoke luxury streetwear. I feel like true luxury is having something made just for you. You could tell the story of that piece when you get complimented on how it looks. So I feel like that is, for me... There's a lot more beauty around that whole making process.
0: All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippi. It's the end of the week, which means it's time to hear Andrew Miller's take on another frantic week in newsrooms across the globe. Here is this week's What We Learned.
3: We learned this week of what felt ominously like the arrival of 2023's guiding metaphor. For we, well specifically the citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough, learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-a-vis the sexual id of the walrus. For we learned in the ebbing hours of 2022 that the shoreline of Scarborough's harbour had been unexpectedly adorned by a large male Arctic walrus. Which proceeded, presumably by way of relaxing after its long swim, to indulge in actions which caused onlooking parents to frantically improvise placatory answers to the innocent, wide-eyed question, Mummy and or Daddy, what is the walrus doing? As if this wasn't sufficient to thoroughly remove the romance from the looming New Year for Scarboroughs, local authorities decided to cancel the town's New Year fireworks for fear of alarming the creature, or perhaps just putting him off his stroke. We further learned that the locals had named the walrus Thor, as indeed he will be if he doesn't give it a rest. We're here all year, try the clams, cockles and mussels, which, we learned while researching this bit, is what walruses eat. Satirical, yet informative. We learned, anyway, that Thor had wearied of what Scarborough had to offer fairly swiftly, wouldn't be the first, etc., and had continued north, next spotted in Blythe, napping on a pontoon at a local yacht club. And we learned, or at least deduced, that Thor had clearly done some preparatory research before embarking upon his voyage along England's northeast coast, for he had wisely skipped Hartlepool. This observation is not any reflection on modern-day Hartlepool, and a big hello to our many listeners there, but an extremely cheap joke alluding to the persistent legend that during the Napoleonic Wars of some while ago, the denizens of Hartlepool tried, convicted, sentenced, and hanged a shipwrecked monkey in the belief that it was a French spy. So it is anyone's guess what the Hartley Hartlepoolians would have made of an entire walrus. However... Sticking with the subject of bellicose oafish, mannerless and somewhat corpulent creatures fleeing northwards, we learned that recently unelected Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro was not minded to stick around and hand over the pertinent ceremonial sash to his successor, as a good sport should. We learned that like many a cranky tangerine hued retiree before him, Bolsonaro had decamped to, to Florida, the and finally state. And that led us to learn, not for the first time, that there are few more reliable ways to pad out a whimsical news monologue than typing the phrase Florida Man into Google News, from which we learned that a Florida man has been summonsed after attending a basketball game with a Pomeranian dog died to resemble the Pokemon character Pikachu. What? what? Oh, What's the
2: point of what that? I that what What? what? I don't understand that.
3: Solid start to 2023, Florida Man, and we, for one whimsical news monologue, are very much looking forward to another productive year of working together. Can I take your order, please? But we digress. We further learned from Bolsonaro's Florida Flit something of the culinary preferences of the runaway president after he was spotted dining in a Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet, an image which furnished us with two possible punchlines. One was about cannibalism, chicken-eating-chicken sort of thing, which to be honest may still need work, the other along the lines that Bolsonaro perhaps wished to interact with the only colonel who will still take his orders. Probably what's easiest all round is if you download the file of this episode, clip out the gag you like least, and then play it again. Why should we do all the work? And we learned that every indication is that the United States Republican Party intends to spend this year, as it has spent the several years preceding, having a normal one.
4: Thank you, Madam Clerk. I rise today to nominate Kevin McCarthy
5: as Speaker of the People's House.
3: We learned not only of the lengths to which Congressional Republicans as a whole will go to enable themselves to continue brawling over absolute nonsense instead of doing any actual governing or anything, But we also learned that the GOP spiral into lunacy may have some further helter to skelter, judging by the quality of their new intake. For we learned quite a lot about... this guy. Look, I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. Specifically, we learned that George Santos, now representing New York's 3rd District, and well done, New York's 3rd District, is not... Counter to various claims he made while campaigning, a university graduate, a property tycoon, a Wall Street financier, Jewish, the son of a 9-11 victim, or possibly actually called George. We learned that he is, however, wanted in Brazil for using a stolen checkbook. Still, if there's one thing we have learned before now, and from which we can derive considerable consolation, it's that clowns, frauds and grifters from New York hardly ever get anywhere in American politics. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: In 2019, Formula One launched its plan to be net-zero carbon by 2030. It followed a report into its environmental impact that revealed the championship was responsible for generating more than a quarter of a million tons of CO2 emissions a season. Nearly three years later, what is the sport doing to meet this ambitious target? Monaco Emily Sands went to find out.
5: Formula One, a sport that started in the 40s, has now turned into a multi-billion dollar industry, travelling all around the globe every year to bring us nine months of jam-packed, high-intense racing to crown the next world champion. But in those last eight decades, the world has changed significantly. And as a result of that, sustainability is a topic that is at the forefront of any organisation's business model. And motorsport has the perception of being one of the most harmful sports when it comes to the release of carbon emissions. In 2019, Formula One announced that they would be setting out a series of commitments to have a net zero carbon footprint by 2030. I spoke to Inge Stracker, a Formula One broadcast partner for Germany, Austria and Switzerland and sponsor of Make-A-Wish Foundation, to get a better understanding of what those plans are. For Formula One, it is a
6: challenging approach, but at the same time, they know that they need to do it. It includes delivering 100% sustainable fuels. That is going step by step in a few years' time. I think it's well needed. I think it's um, very important. And also pointing out that that means Formula 1 is not just looking at the fuels. It's looking at biofuels. They're looking at events, talking with their race promoters and the on-site people at every race. They're looking at their own operations. They're also looking at diversity and inclusion. So it is an overall programme. super interesting. And if you know Formula One as I do for many, many years,
5: it's great to see. However, in September this year, Formula One announced that they would be increasing the amount of races for the 2023 season. This would leave us with 24 separate race weekends, the highest number of races planned for a season in the sports history so far. There was speculation that this was a huge step backwards in the goal to be in carbon neutral by 2030.
6: In general, a lot of the people involved working in Formula 1, especially mechanics and such, who really are on the road a lot, they think it's too many races. But then again, it's all about the show, it's all about the money. Formula 1 has already said that they are looking at the calendar to make it even more, to design it more environmental-friendly with races like Canada and the U.S., and um, South America,
5: grouping them together. A common misconception in the sport is that the race cars are the reason why CO2 pollution is so heavy at race weekends. But this isn't the case. Logistics are the main contributors. In 2021, data collected showed that 45% of the total 265,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions came from logistics and fan travel.
6: Of course, it's good for every sport to have more fans, more action, new races, good for the sport. The drivers have been two-sided. People like Sebastian Vettel have said, if you put in more races, there has to be a cut where it's too many and where there can't be more added. Also look at the calendar, look at the transportation, look at everything that is involved and see if you can still achieve the sustainability goals that should be above everything.
5: Four-time world champion Sebastian Vettel has been very vocal about climate change in general and also within his beloved sport. He mentioned that Formula One's approaches to sustainability influence his retirement at the end of 2022. But are statements like this from the sportsman himself enough to influence the FIA and Formula One into making wiser decisions moving forward?
6: I think they already have listened. And they already have changed their ways, not just because of Sebastian Vettel. I would have wished for him to continue racing because as an active racing driver, he does have, or he did have, a very loud voice, just like Lewis Hamilton with his diversity programmes, with his actions that he's taking, with his uh, foundation that he has started, where he's
5: really actively making changes, not just talking. After a lot of planning, BWT, official partner for Formula One and Alpine Formula One team, have been working to achieve Formula One's commitment to becoming 100% sustainable at race weekends by 2025. This began this year, as Formula One issued a list of six important steps that must be taken into consideration by all track promoters. Reducing plastic waste, evaluating local fan travel, the upkeeping of well-being and nature, the local communities, energy and carbon. Pirelli, Formula One's tyre supplier, has also been working to attain sustainable goals within tyre disposal.
6: Well, Mario Reisola, the Pirelli motorsport chief, he said they're already looking and already working With an increase of renewable materials, they are working to the elimination of single-use plastics from on-track activities. And they are also working on an overall CO2 emission reduction by actually having only 25% by 2025. They also look at green energy, electricity, and they're also looking at recovering valuable materials from motorsport tyres at the end of their lives. So I think good potential, very high potential of increasing sustainability and therefore helping not just Formula One, but motorsports overall.
5: I asked Inga about Formula E, the single seater electric racing series, and the chances of them possibly overtaking Formula One with their sustainability goals.
6: Formula One has a lot more chances than Formula E, because Formula One can work with the biofuels, with the green fuels. They have the most efficient hybrid engine. And that can be seen as a leading example that can be looked at by all car manufacturers, actually, who are already or planning to produce hybrid engines. And that, in combination with the sustainable fuels, can actually be, and don't get me wrong, be better for the environment and more sustainable than Formula E, unless... Formula E is able to produce their electricity 100% with green energy and I'm hoping that Formula One will stay ahead of Formula E and they won't be overtaking them.
5: Although it's going to be a long journey to get to 2030, it's evident that Formula One are aware of their impact on climate change and they are working hard and ensuring that their fans and workers can rely on a better racing net zero carbon future.
0: Monocle's Emily Sands there. For this week's edition of Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound looked at the cultural year ahead with guests Francesca Gavin, Chris Power and Scott Bryan to explore the very best upcoming art exhibitions, TV shows and books. Let's have a listen.
7: Chris, we're coming back to you um, and, a, well, and a new novel um, by one of my favourite writers, Javier Marias
1: new and most likely final novel unless there was something else yet unpublished um at the time of his unexpected death uh, one of my favorite writers so um yeah it's kind of mixed mixed emotions that mm. bring me to this book which i've only read the start of so far but it's 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 you know marius has a way with first lines and this book's no <laughs> exception it begins i was brought up the old fashioned way and couldn't ever have dreamed that i would one day be ordered to kill a woman yeah. um and it's about this this retired spy who's kind of brought back for one last job um, where he has to move to a sm- small Spanish town and determine which of three women is a an ETA terrorist in in hiding. And Thomas Nevinson, the, the title character, he he was actually in Mariesse's previous novel, Berta Isla, which was about a woman called Berta Isla, and Thomas Nevinson's a, a supporting character. And that novel also features this this um, spy master called Tupra who is in Marius's trilogy, Your Face Tomorrow, which he published sort of 12 or so years ago. But I don't think people should be put off by all these sort of recurring characters because the novel's not out for a few months. So what you should do if you haven't read Marius is just go and read all of Marius for the next few months. And then you can cap it all with Thomas Nevinson, this sort of 600-plus page um, capstone on his career. Um, and I think... That would not be time wasted because he's such an amazing writer. I mean, two of the novels that he published back to back in the 90s, A Heart So White and Tomorrow in the Battle, Think on Me, I I think two of the best novels of the 90s. And he's a really interesting, you know, he said of his style, he said, I write with a map. Uh, sorry I write with a compass not a map. He's got a very digressive style so he kind of wanders everywhere. Sort
7: of you, you feel like sometimes you're in a dreamscape you're going down corridors you're meeting people you're getting little glimpses of detail that mm. aren't uh, that they're, they're not magically realist or anything like that they're kind of very they're more naturalistic but, no, they're but very they're, shimmering aren't they're they're
1: they? They're shadowy mm. and the books are labyrinthine and and he brings out the the oddity of of everyday life mm. you know he kind of he sort of wrote your face tomorrow is a sort of trilogy of, of spy novels really and i saw it as a bit of a left turn i love the books but actually then reading his older work i'm like oh these are all kind of spy novels even though one's about you know oxford dons and one's about uh, you know a jilted lover but the way they operate and the sort of distrust and this sort of malleability of character and the unknowability of, of other people all ties in with a sort of a sort of spy theme um and i think that sort of digressiveness he has it always builds thematically so you kind of know that he's going to going to bring it home to an extent so in the first 30 pages of this new novel you have sort of um a disquisition on on the executions of Anne Boleyn and Marie Antoinette and then musing on assassination attempts on Hitler the films of Fritz Lang and all the while he's asking this question like what would it take would you ever be capable of murdering someone, you know, mm. even if it was a Hitler? Even if it's that sort of tried, old, tested philosophical question? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just can't wait to. Amazing! To oh, it's it.
7: it's, uh, it's uh, it sounds delicious, Chris. Um, it's it's he's he's so wonderful. You never see what he's doing, right? You're re- you're kind of always in it, and you can't see the edges Absolutely, of it yeah. ever anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful immersive. skill. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. Um, That is going to be new from Javier Marias, Dearly Departed, um, and the novel is called Tomás Nevinson. Thanks, Chris, very much. Scott, we're coming back to you for a little last bit of telly, uh, and this is Boiling Point.
8: Yes, so it stars Stephen Graham. My philosophy has always been that Stephen Graham's never been on TV in anything bad. He's yeah. just one of those incredible actors. Um, this is, um, earlier we were talking about a game turning into a TV show. This is a film turning into a TV show. Um, Stephen Graham was in Boiling Point, which was a film that came out last year. Um, got 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, just absolute adoration for this. Um, it's about a head chef at a market restaurant and then over the course of an evening everything just goes to hell basically (laughs) um of course chefs and the environments they work in can be stressful at the best of times but he finds out during his shift that his health and safety inspections gone poorly that there is a big celebrity in the um, in the restaurant too Um, and all just sort of you get that pressure cooker sense of environment I think it had so much love because it was also filmed in one take Mm. which has been done in films before but I mean it's one of the hardest feats to go and do so they're now making this into a TV series uh, six parters I think to everyone's relief, it's not going to be all shots in one take. You can breathe. But it will (laughs) be having a naturalistic style of approach because I think that's what it was um, praised for and I think it's
7: do- It was almost like a featured documentary almost I mean that's the yeah. thing I think to
8: many people who saw it at least at first they would be thinking that they are watching a doc- documentary until of course they realised that Stephen Graham I mean could possibly cook but um, <laughs> yeah. is yeah. not the focus hasn't changed into a phenomenal <laughs> yeah. chef yeah. overnight and We love him but come me. on
7: we've got to draw the line somewhere he's got three Michelin stars as well Yeah
8: I mean come, come on. on I wouldn't be surprised because Stephen Graham <laughs> um, So yes this is one to look out for I I think just because uh, it's one of the most popular popular shows um uh of last year were ones in which you saw the inner workings of how places sort of work and manifest. Like the Bear, for example. Now, mm. That is another TV show set within a Chicago based restaurant. The sort of the clash of personalities, the the sense of perfectionism, the dealing of, of stress, um and just the, the idea of your personal life and your professional life kind of clashing dramatically.
7: Um, so I'm very excited for this TV TV series. Yeah it sounds amazing a proper pressure cooker kind of um, environment and that is Boiling Point excitingly coming to the BBC at some point uh, near the beginning of this year. Thanks Scott. Um, Fran we're coming back to you mm. and the excellent Mike Nelson. I Hooray mean, for him at the Hayward. I
9: cannot say how excited I am about the show. This is for me there's no way this won't be the best show of next year. Mike Nelson British artist represented the Venice Biennale in like the beginning of a decade ago been nominated for Turner Prize twice. He is Just an incredible artist who basically pioneered the entire relationship to installation work. So if you go into like a random cab office in Hackney, there are moments where you're like, wow, I'm in a Mike Nelson. (laughs) He basically has never had a studio. And he's always worked with like found site-specific projects. I mean, he has a studio in South London in Crystal Palace, but he actually has never had like a working studio. So it's always site-specific projects, very much led by 19th century literature and early sci-fi, feeding into it all, often rooms within rooms, It's so rare to see installation work reconfigured and represented again. A few years ago, Tate did Coral Reef, which was one of his pieces, so you could go see it.
7: This is the sort of decommissioned industrial machines in the Devine Gallery. Actually,
9: this was before that. Ah. That Devine commission was also truly Mm. amazing. I mean, he's very much talking about British culture, even when it's not. Often, actually, Turkey's a big, big influence. He's travelled a lot around the Middle East. So once you have an installation work, often you never see them ever again. So for me, this show is so exciting that we're going to see shows like projects from 2004, 2001, 2011, that it's just such a rare opportunity. And post-pandemic, when we're so used to like not having to necessarily be within a space, I think Mike Nelson's work is going to sing like a beautiful diva I mean, it's going to be incredible. I'm very, very, very excited by the show.
7: And it is, it's a bit, and as you say, he's a lot of it's sort of about Britain and about British history and in industrial history and. Probably the history of what men do for a living—I kind of got some of that through his work as well. I don't want to mention the B-word and make it boring, but it, there is something about recent British history that seems to that, that he feels like sort of, he sort of—he seems to me like he was telling the telling the future, like he was reading the tea leaves. Really. Well, this
9: show's called Extinction Beckons, and I actually think the real underlying thing under Nelson's work is the idea of decay. Hmm. And very much looking at that, I mean, it can be playing around with kind of dystopian ideas that have wandered through in things like science fiction or Jules Verne or that kind of thing. He uses objects that actually were kind of co-opted afterwards a lot by interactive theatre. They kind of stole his shtick. But um, he's very much like, how do you take narrative and make it into space that you can wander around? It's like wandering around inside the head of a novelist but the novelist is Mike Nelson who's obviously very aware and and of of its art context I mean Mike Nelson's genius he's brilliant his work is there's so much subtlety in it yeah yeah
0: Francesca Gavin Chris Power and Scott Bryan in conversation with Robert Bound for this week's edition of Monocle on Culture Still to come on The Curator, we stop off in Buenos Aires for a tall story. We hear about Panda Diplomacy and we take a stroll down London Seville Row to meet a new arrival drawing a different crowd. Stay tuned.
7: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
10: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
9: To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
0: You are with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle24, and I am Marcus Hippie. Next we turn to this week's episode of Monocle on Design and head to London's storied Savile Row. A new arrival to the street, famous for its tailoring, is Cloth Surgeon, which is drawing a new crowd to the area with an offer of bespoke streetwear. Settling into its bricks-and-mortar store, which opened in 2022, the brand melds classic men's silhouettes with sportswear. Monaco's Smiley Evans visited their
2: atelier and sent us this report. It's just a kind of a, a play on made-to-measure, because that jacket's not going to fit anyone. I mean, it's absolutely ginormous. It would even drown Shaquille O'Neal.
4: I'm stood beside Rav Matharu, the founder and co-director of Cloth Surgeon, as we study the giant patchwork piece displayed prominently in the store windows of 40 Savile Row. Rav reckons the garment is one of the most photographed things on Savile Row, maybe besides a small blue plaque that celebrates the Beatles' infamous rooftop concert of 1969.
2: All the fabrication within that giant piece is from the collection that's on the rail, Uh, and it's just a play on made to measure, so, You know, it's huge, um, just saying that we can make to any size and we can make anything the customer wants.
4: As the first bespoke streetwear brand on Savile Row, a headquarters and flagship shop offers a big moment for the brand, who have been building up to this for nearly 10 years.
2: With the space, I wanted to create a Brazilian townhouse type feel, cross art gallery, so it's very bright, you know, to showcase what I call the gallery collection, uh, which runs down the left side of the, of the store. Um, that shows you what you can create in terms of fabrications, silhouettes, you know, inspire your decisions in terms of your bespoke piece. There is no parameters in terms of silhouettes and shapes. Uh, you can create an idea that you have in your mind uh, guided by my skills and services. With everything around the bespoke, it's always new. I'm not creating a collection where I'm seeing the same piece over and over again. So it's very exciting in that sense, you know, sitting down and creating with a customer as opposed to just creating a collection and mass producing that item. I prefer to kind of really focus on, you know, working with a client, creating new pieces, creating exclusive pieces. You can go to stores and pay a lot of money to buy a jacket and you may turn up to a party and like three people are wearing the exact same thing so for me that isn't true luxury i feel like true luxury is having something made just for you you can tell the story of that piece when you get complimented on how it looks so i feel like that is for me there's a lot more beauty around that whole making process
4: let's have a look around and I don't know if there were any certain pieces that you feel people are often drawn to, or what kind of tends to be popular when people come in?
2: I guess the most popular pieces um, are probably the Laura Piana bomber, a classic streetwear, menswear silhouette, a stapling in every man's wardrobe, I I think it should be, so we elevate that through fabrication. This is Laura Piana coronera wool. Um, So we've had quite a few orders on this piece and variations of this um, particular garment. And also our straight leg, double pleated trouser, which has been extremely popular. A tailored garment, but worn quite casually. This is uh, the Tonal Tartan, which we get from Scotland. Great thing about the brand is we don't have a demographic as such so anyone who comes through that door can create a piece for themselves. We've got a lot of customers who don't know about the brand and wandering in whilst they may go to a tailoring house across the road to buy their formal pieces. They really touched to the idea of creating casual wear and creating their casual wardrobe. We have our existing customer and following who have been coming in and just really excited to see the products in hand and feel and try pieces on and very kind of supportive I'm very proud almost because a lot of these people have followed the journey for the last 10 years. Great response from the rest of the street, the rest of the, the tailors, the houses, um, you know, I'm very excited to have a new energy on the street but we fully respect the craftsmanship, our approach to making product is in the same way that, you know, you would make a, a beautifully tailored jacket.
4: One clothing rail at the back of the store captures my attention. On it, a variety of recognisable icons and brands, but reconfigured in new ways. This is the Reconstructive Collection, an ongoing project taking existing pieces and transforming them into newer works.
2: Vintage Burberry scarves, they're made into a waistcoat. Uh, Vuitton scarves, they're made into a blue-tone camclaw shirt and a pleated shorts.
4: Why do you keep coming back to reconstructing and taking pieces apart and seeing what else you could create with them?
2: Everyone recognises it as one item and like is very familiar with that piece in that form, but then when you take that and remaking something new, I feel the mind gets very excited about seeing that familiar item in a completely new outfit or garment. I guess it's something that I feel I've got a great skill in doing this. So as soon as I see an item or an object or a fabrication, I have an instant idea of what I'm going to make with that.
4: What draws you to certain textiles or makes you want to work with certain, I guess, manufacturers? One that I was particularly drawn to were the quadrat
2: wool fabrics. The, yeah, and yeah, yeah, the plaid, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Just finding interesting fabrications. We source fabrics from various discreet locations where, you know, you would never be able to find that fabrication again. So I think there's a real story behind that and just finding that fabrication enough to make maybe two or three pieces uh, and then discontinuing that whole fabrication. I think people might think, oh, that's not great from a business point of view, but at the same time, I think it's great from A sense that, you know, there's only a certain amount of those pieces in the world made by us on Savile Row and there's definitely an added exclusivity and story behind that. We do source fabrication from various places, even the Japanese borough that I from a a dealer in Japan. This is probably from the 1930s, maybe 40s, Um, so that's something that each household would have had in their house, and instead of throwing it out, um, they would continuously repair it, and over the the years it builds this incredible character 60, 70 years later. It just carries this amazing detail throughout the piece, you know, all these hand-stitched repair jobs and this Indigo, beautiful colours running throughout the piece. Um, so it's almost wearing an antique and you won't get another piece like that. It's because each piece of borrow will be different. We're working with a customer now on the classic Norfolk jacket, but bring that into the modern world. and Make it look as if it's from that classic world, but bring it back into this kind of contemporary cloth surgeon DNA. I'm going to play with the uh, the shape and proportions, keep the original pocket detailing, kind of elevate that through different fabrications, uh, beautiful cashmere fabric in a plain, as opposed to uh, checks and that kind of rougher handle that a tweed may have. It's not for its original function as a Norfolk jacket, but it's, it's a beautiful jacket that's taken from a certain era. and being a classics piece, but we're bringing it into this new world for a customer who appreciates the Norfolk for what it is, but also wants to wear it casually and to go to maybe out with friends, dinner. So we allow people to be able to do that.
4: Cloth Surgeon may have hit a major milestone with its first bricks and mortar store, but Rav is keen to look ahead and sees potential in going out on the road and doing trunk shows.
2: We have customers from all over the world, so we feel like we need to do these trunk shows to take that service and, you know, connect with our customers and give them that service. You know, because I feel like it needs to be a one-on-one personal service where we sit down and we design and we draw and then we choose fabrications. And then we have a good audience in Japan. Uh, We've done collaborative projects with United Arrows. So yeah, I mean, we're definitely gonna go to the US to do a trunk show, to the Far East uh, also. So it's just figuring it out and then growing the team at the same time. You know, we're in a position now where we want to expand the business and grow the team, and grow the team in the right way. And we've been very patient, you know, with the whole process.
4: Regardless of where cloth surgeon and Rav are showcasing their wares and setting up shop, at the heart of the brands will always be the clothing and respect for craftsmanship.
2: I do treat what we do as uh, an art form. You know, I see each piece as original uh, work of art. You know, we've never wanted to print posters. It's always been about creating that unique, original piece.
4: For Monocle in London, I'm Maylee Evans.
0: Thanks, Maylee. To kick off the new year with some entrepreneurial inspiration, Monica Tom Edwards sat down with the brilliant chairman and founder of U Group and the driving force behind the £1.5 billion regeneration of London Olympia. John Hitchcock has more than 40 years of experience shaping and reshaping neighbourhoods and delivering a groundbreaking vision for our cities. He talks about his life and times as one of the most influential and well-respected entrepreneurs and partners. Pilot- Pioneers in the global property industry.
11: We are very lucky to inherit a name, Olympia. In a way, it's not even really inheriting a name. We are custodians of this beautiful collection of buildings that has just grown over the last 130 years, from 1886, where I'm guessing somebody like me turned up <laughs> and said, "What can we do to exhibit all that's good and great?" I would say, about the UK, and it was probably a little bit broader in 1886, and developed the first building, which is this sort of stunning, almost railway station-like group of buildings, using the sort of pioneers of technology at that time with steel and glass to create this beautiful dome building and and then open it with this beautiful VIP building next door, which is called Pillar Hall, and start the world of exhibiting. Then in 19... 25 or thereabouts there was a, an extension built to it which was a similar one I imagine another similar chap like me turned up and goes here we go we've got a beautiful site here well, let's make this bigger and then somebody again did the same in 1940s with an art deco building and built another beautiful extension and here we are really taking the baton and moving the whole project forward what we inherited here was as i say this beautiful collection of buildings where we could go to the all of the community, the local community, the local government, et cetera, et cetera. And we could say, let's just mow them all down and build a block of flats. What we did was we went there and we said, what we want to do is embrace the exhibition, events, culture, design, and really bring this forward. Because what we have here is an extraordinary location. We're at the end of Kensington High Street. We're 25 minutes away from the airport. We're 25 minutes away from the West End. And we have... 200 shows a year from the horse of the year through to the Ideal Home Exhibition, a lot of different events. We did 63 days of public consultation In this beautiful hall called Pillar Hall. And we went and we said, we're going to embrace this. And we're going to build and we're going to really rebuild Olympia and polish her. To a certain extent, she was the poor cousin of Earl's Court for many years. And no one quite knows why, because in actual fact, much prettier building, etc, etc. Although Earl's Court was a lot bigger and the big shows, you know, went there. And with Earl's Court gone, we're left with really three big events and exhibition venues in the uk one being nec the other being excel and the third being us our real plus points are location quality of buildings uniqueness and things like the horse of the year things like the book fair we're the sort of go-to stable for those sorts of shows which cross between consumer and in some cases business
12: yeah, and there's such a sort of romance about Olympia, I, mean, I think frequent visitors will understand why you talk about, in this almost you know, reverential tone, about that amazing history, the design. It's still, it's got the best sort of interior climate control of any, practically any building I own. It's never too hot, it's never yeah, too cold, just... and it comes back to this idea, These Victorians knew a thing or two about Absolutely. how to No, <laughs> how they to did. I mean, the things.
11: building was built incredibly quickly, and this level of deterioration is actually relatively small. And so we've started down the process. We, we did these 63 days of public consultation with everyone from the next door neighbour, with the fox in the garden through to the Prime Minister. And our pitch was, let's embrace this. Let's do what we can to really support these 130,000 businesses. And the output of that was theatres, music venues, restaurants, hotels. And we're very lucky now, particularly through the storm that we've all been in. We've come out with some first-class operators. AEG, which runs the O2 and is one of the biggest players in the field of entertainment, is building a 4,000-capacity music venue on site with us so you'll have a sort of big artist in residence for four or five days or a week there that will hopefully complement the shows that will be going on we them. then built the first theatre in London for the last 60 or 70 years as we can see at 1600 seater theatre along with a number of other big tents that are coming through now so as as we're on site and it's on its way. It's
12: pretty exciting. And we'll come back to a little more of the detail. But I wanted there's a few threads from some of the things you've mentioned there, yeah. John already, which actually I think in terms of this chat, which I you know, I want to kind of get under the hood a little bit of John Hitchcock's as oh, well right, as the right, businesses right. that you have presided and continue to preside over. And some of the threads I think they're interesting to sort of pull out, which are really interesting, is that just that focus, an obsessive focus on design, whether that's the storied history of specific buildings, but just making that something of a a prerequisite for any project there has to be this yeah. focus recognition of fascination with design i know that's obviously something that's been important with all those people you've collaborated mm. with the great philip stark mm. and so on do you think that is i don't know did you arrive at a point where you came to appreciate design it had to inform the work you wanted to do or was it through doing some projects maybe where there were issues or disagreements around the design ethos and you were like, I can't work like this. How did you sort of develop that sort of I think, sensibility? I, think, around I mean,
11: I, I'm sure this isn't the most sexy answer, but I think there were two things. I think I, I, I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I'm a Steiner kid. I went to Rudolf Steiner school where not many people want to be businessmen. And so in a way, I probably, if I had, if i have been to a normal school, I probably would have been an accountant or a lawyer or something, something along those lines. But Having had this deep immersion in creativity, arts, and music through being at a Steiner school, that overlaid with the desire to become an entrepreneur. My father was an architect, and so I was very frequently seeing a lot of design, but, you know, his drawing board was in the middle of the house, and it was back in the day where it was a drawing board, and he was drawing it. So I was deeply imbibed and immersed in design. Every house that we, I think, I don't know how many houses we were in when I was a kid, but it's in, you know, it's probably close to double digits. And we would move into a two up, two down, and we'd leave it as a five bedroom house because there were five kids. And the day that we saw it finished was the day that we moved out. And then we moved on to the next one. So design, construction and building was, you know, it was was like Lego. They were like building blocks. I mean, that's what playtime and fun time was. And then the other flip side of this was that my mother wanted me to be a musician, So I was marched off to learn the violin, the piano, the recorder, the clarinet. And I was obviously useless at all of these. So my mother then sort of started focusing more on... Well, well, two things happened. She focused more on my younger sister, who did become a performing violinist and an architect, which is quite ironic. Now, I got relegated to being a conductor, which back in those days was a little bit like being a DJ. But, of course, a conductor now is like a hero, and a DJ is a hero now. And so... You know, and my job today is not much different from being a conductor. I think the combination of those two things at home, wanting to be an entrepreneur, you used to throw them all in a pot and shake it all up and you've got me. I look at my father obsessing with why we couldn't harness wave power back in the winter of discontent with Arthur Scargill because we didn't have any electricity. And we were busy putting windmills up and we were looking at how you could charge a battery off them and those sorts of things. And that's what I do now. So I've lived a very practical life in the amalgamation of all of that lot. And everything I do, I do for fun. I do for pleasure. And I do with an absolute innate desire to leave the planet in a better place than when we started.
0: The German and founder of U-Group, John Hitchcock, in conversation with Monocle's Tom Edwards. You are with the curator of our weekly highlights show here on Monocle24. I am Markus Hippy. For this week's tall stories, Lucinda Elliott visits a palace in downtown Buenos Aires, originally designed to provide safe drinking water for the city's residents.
13: Outside a vast Victorian palace in downtown Buenos Aires, you'll occasionally overhear somebody say, accidentally, where's Anderson? In a reference to the Instagram community of travelers and architecture enthusiasts who enjoy discovering the unexpected stories behind unusual building facades. This one, the Palacio de Aguas Corrientes, or Palace of the Running Waters, is a breathtakingly beautiful 19th century water pumping station on Avenida Córdoba. And it has a curious story ...worthy of Wes Anderson status. Wander in today and you'll be surprised to find a museum... ...dedicated to the story of providing water to millions. Hundreds of toilets of all designs spanning decades are on display... ...with giant sewer pipes overhead... ...that help to explain the history of the city's water supply. Back in the mid-1800s, the population of Argentina's capital swelled. Many migrants arrived at the port town in search of opportunities and with them came a string of severe epidemics, from yellow fever and cholera to terrible outbreaks of typhoid. Before proper plumbing, drinking water was held in collecting pools inside individual homes, which meant the disease only spread further. Alarmed, authorities first began building hospitals, but the conclusion quickly drawn was that the cause of the illnesses needed to be addressed. They set out in search of a site to construct a modern running water system, selecting what was then the highest point in the city. This meant that water stalled there could flow through pipes to residences, using only the force of gravity. The trouble was, the building itself, as well as serving a purpose, had to reflect the glory of this newly independent, agriculturally rich nation. Buenos Aires was only named the capital as late as 1880, and in the surrounding area of the site stood elegant mansions owned by wealthier families who had fled the disease-ridden old town, Lower Down. So, an industrial looking water purification building was not exactly welcome by residents of this affluent district. The building not only had to fit in with its neighbours, it had to outshine them. In came Swedish Argentine architect Carlos Nysrama, who used 300,000 glazed multicoloured terracotta tiles imported from Britain. Today, these are one of the monument's most striking features. British engineers provided him with the designs for the water sanitation system hidden inside an enormous iron structure with tanks spanning three floors that were capable of holding more than 72 million litres of water. It was so well-built by a Belgian team that many of the original pipes remain. For the next hundred years after its inauguration in 1894, the Palacio was operated by the municipality. It wasn't until the late 1980s that revered for both its form and function by porteños and visitors It was granted national heritage status and converted into a museum. More recently, the city's water company has started using it as an office base. Unfortunately, water remains a serious issue, in part because of successive economic booms and busts in Argentina. In the Buenos Aires suburbs, an estimated 3.7 million people still don't have access to water mains, many who live in precarious housing. The World Bank recently approved a $300 million loan for sanitation services in the metropolitan area and to help reduce how much water is lost due to poor infrastructure. With the Southern Hemisphere summer in full swing and in the wake of our own 21st century pandemic, there's perhaps never been a better time to start thinking of the next Palacio de Aguas Corrientes.
0: Monaco's Lucinta Elia there. Now, Monocle's annual soft power survey has hit the newsstands. In it, we consider some of the established and bizarre ways that countries project themselves abroad. Perhaps among the most peculiar soft power strategies is the use of animals as diplomats. In China, the giant panda may be a cute and cuddly creature, but it's also a formidable diplomat. Since 1949, China has been lending pandas to zoos around the world as emblems of China's favour, but how does animal diplomacy really work? For the Foreign Desk Monocle's and Munna spoke to Dr Paul Gibson, a conservation expert at Oxford University. Andrew began by asking Paul why animals are so effective
10: as diplomatic gifts. It goes back as long as history. So I used to work in Indonesia a lot, and there, you know, the different sultanates were giving animals way, way back. And I think there's a couple of reasons why they're so good. One is that, of course, if you give a living animal... The receiver of that gift has to keep it alive, (laughs) and if you keep an animal alive, you need a place to put it, and then it becomes a bit of a centerpiece, not only for your family but your courts, and then in modern times, for a city zoo. So actually, you're giving a legacy of your presence. But when people see an exotic animal, we always ask, like, oh, where does it come from? And so you, as the giver, your country or your king or whoever it might be, keeps in the mind of the recipient or the recipient community and nation. And then, of course, it also is interesting because they almost put an obligation of the recipient towards the giver. Because if you go back again and the animal's dead, it doesn't show that you've been respected, if you see (laughs) what I mean. And that relationship and that need to keep it alive creates a, a lasting connection between the person who gives an animal and the person who receives it, or the countries in the more modern case. But animals have generally been used to relationships of shared interest in animals of trust and a sort of symbolic of a commitment for wanting that longer term connection based on mutual benefit usually
3: well it is the panda that people think of certainly in modern times when they think of animals being used in this way and that's where we get the phrase panda diplomacy from Is there something about the panda itself which makes it a uniquely potent asset in this respect? Is it just the fact that they are so extraordinarily cute and weird and odd and everybody is fascinated by them?
10: Well, there is all of that, as you suggest. But I think there's some special things about the panda. One is that only occurs in China. And China was if you like, very clever or very astute, maybe, in that it very early on, when I say early on, this was about 40 or 50 years ago, it moved to assure that it had ownership of all pandas in the world. We could argue, for instance, something like the tiger or the Komodo dragon is equally extraordinary, maybe not quite as cute, but equally extraordinary. But those, if you like, they spread out of those countries quite quickly, and they were bred and owned by other countries. But that combination of cuteness and its emblematic and symbolic value of the panda, and the fact that you can only get them from China (laughs) as giving it that potency, whereas nowadays, because in some ways zoos and animals are so international, anybody could give anybody a tiger if they felt the need to do so.
3: Just going back to the cuteness of the panda, is that especially important to China in the modern context in that there's something unmenacing, reassuring about the gift of a panda? I mean, I come from a country, Australia, which has an enormous arsenal of soft power assets in this respect, but frankly, most of our native fauna will take your face off if you look at it the wrong way, whereas the panda is obviously not going to do that.
10: Now, this is a really good point. So in the research we did, we sort of asked that question, actually, and we did find out that there was a concept conscious recognition, actually, of China thinking about what would be its national animal in a new era. And of course, you always associate the red dragon with China, which is quite a sort of challenging and ferocious animal. So the panda was seen as, at the time when China was coming out of its periods of isolation, as a symbol, as an animal, as an emblem, which sort of conveyed a friendly, non-aggressive persona, if you like.
3: What are some concrete examples of China leveraging the panda for diplomatic advantage?
10: The whole idea of panda diplomacy, it started back at the end of the Cold War, and we had America and Russia at loggerheads on it, and then China coming out of its isolation and wanting to build itself as a presence on the world stage, but not wanting to align itself with either of the two big superpowers at that time. As they were coming out, they had state visits with Russia and then the US and also the UK. And as part of those state visits, they gifted pandas to them. You know, that's the origin of the notion of panda diplomacy, where this was the gift. And it was a hugely influential gift at the time. I mean, you can imagine that there hadn't been a live panda in the US since the 1930s. And when there was one, it was real high society stuff. So, for the US to be given a panda, same in London, it was a sensation. People are seeing these pandas and thinking, we're feeling wonderful about having this panda. So, that sort of filters over to feeling good about China.
3: What do we know about how these decisions get made? Uh, Is the allocation of pandas part of the negotiation at trade agreements, as in agree to this pipeline and we'll throw in a couple of pandas as well? Or is it normally the thing they send afterwards as an afterthought, much as one might send, I don't know, a bunch of flowers or a gift hamper to the other party to a recently concluded deal?
10: So what happens at the moment in the modern era of panda diplomacy? And just to stress to your listeners that it's not gift giving anymore. It's a sort of lease model in it. And it's done within the context of international conservation and endangered species conservation. That's how it's allowed, if you like, internationally. So all pandas are part of captive breeding programs. And those captive breeding programs, they happen in zoos. So what seems to happen is that a number of zoos around the world would like to have a panda exhibit and that in some ways puts the zoos in the sort of premier league of world zoos. But if you'd like to ask for a panda, you first of all, have to build relationships in these international networks of panda keeping of which of course the Chinese state forestry department, they manage the Wulong breeding center. They're very influential in it, but the panda is a national treasure. So it's classified as a state national treasure in China. That means they can only be allowed to go out of China with the approval of the Politburo. Now, of course, the highest level of decision-making in China, they have a pretty busy agenda. So what seems to happen is that when there is a major trade deal going on between one country and China, the zoo in the Western country or also ASEAN countries as well, or, or Australia, that gives them an opportunity for the zoo and the State Forestry Department to recommend to the Politburo as part of their bigger agenda of talking about this trade deal to recommend that this zoo gets a panda. It's quite regulated, it goes to quite a high level, but you almost need that window of opportunity associated with a trade deal to do it. And then of course, then as this happens, The sort of other side of it, it's a nice seal of approval as a symbol of that trade deal because the panda comes over or it's announced that it's coming over. The politicians usually get involved in that and it sort of symbolizes long-term friendly relationship. We are at least in the Chinese mind that the recipient country is going to host a living national treasure of China. (laughs) And when you put it like that, that's quite significant.
0: That was Dr. Paul Jepsen speaking to Monocle's Andrew Miller, And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impian, and presented by me, Markus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening.